0: want to welcome our Bloomberg television audience to our exclusive Bloomberg radio interview with John Williams. He's president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, joining us today at our San Francisco Bloomberg News Bureau. John, welcome.
1: San Francisco. I am president of San Francisco Fed.
0: Did I, uh, you are? Yes. Which one are I just St. making? St. Louis. St. Louis. Well, you know, I've been on I a roll. I don't want my,
1: my good friend Jim Bowler thinking I'm up to something here.
0: Impersonating another Fed official, that could get you in real trouble. Exactly. So John Williams, president of the San Francisco Fed, and here we are in the beautiful Bay Area. It's great to be back with you. Uh, John, I want to drive right in, though. Uh, You know, you've been recently upbeat on the U.S. economy. In your most recent speech in March, you painted a picture of a growing U.S. economy. You're looking for 2% GDP growth at least this year. Confident inflation is going to hit its target by the end of next year. And you've emphasized that weakness overseas isn't decisive for the U.S. economy. So with all that in mind, were you on board last week with the Fed's decision to not move on interest rates? Uh,
1: Yes, I was. I mean, I think we are in a uh, very data-dependent mode. We want to make sure that we have a very good reading and understanding of what's happening both in the U.S. economy in terms of growth, jobs, and inflation, uh, but also make sure we have a good read on what's happening globally, because that does affect the U.S. economy. So I I am a supporter of the decisions we've uh, made this year. Uh, That said, I do also support the, the statement we put out there, which is that I do expect us to be raising rates gradually uh, over the next couple of years due to the strength in the labor market and where I see inflation going.
0: So how are you looking at the U.S. economy in light of that first quarter GDP figure, John? 0.5 percent. And I know your team has has discounted it, not just discounted it, but analyzed it. And you've looked at the seasonality in those first quarter numbers, how they tend that first quarter GDP for many years now has tended to be slower than forecast uh, by a wide margin. In fact, uh, Your your, uh, economist, Glenn Rudebush, has argued that if you account for that, growth was probably closer to 1.6% in the first quarter. Hasn't that statistical anomaly been fixed, though?
1: Well, you know, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, they have a lot of people working on this issue of what we call residual seasonality. um, And I think they have made good improvements. They do a great job with the data. But this is an anomaly that, as you mentioned, we've seen for many years now. So my own view is that the data in the first quarter, we do have to discount it a bit. And my view would be, be closer to something like two percent growth or more consistent with what I see as the underlying trend. So overall I haven't changed my view about what growth over the whole year will be. Around two percent real GDP growth, which is what we saw last year.
0: Quite apart from GDP though, retail sales, PCE, you know the personal consumption expenditures, they came in on the weak side in the first quarter. Are you are, is there a risk that you overlook that signs, other signs? that the U.S. economy actually lost momentum in the first quarter and that 0.5% isn't such an anomaly... You know, then you, you average growth in the, first, the, the fourth quarter and the first quarter. This is a pretty weak start to 2016, which maybe makes that 2% plus a little bit harder to achieve.
1: Well, you know, when I, when I think about this, again, we want to be data-dependent. I think this is another reason to be a little bit cautious in terms of jumping to conclusions, either positive or negative, based on the first quarter growth. I do want to see good uh, consumer spending uh, data in the next couple months. I do want to see more signs that that anomalous reading in the first quarter really was anomalous. So I, I agree with that point. I do tend to focus more on the employment data. Uh, employment job gains have been really strong all the way through the latest data we'll, we've seen you know we're going to get some more data uh, soon as well uh, but when you look at uh, job growth you look at unemployment you look at labor force participation and a lot of other indicators labor market continues to improve i think we're at full employment or close to it on all these indicators so i do take a pretty strong signal from the from the employment side not just the gdp which tends to be you know volatile and subject to some of these revisions and other issues
0: so as we look ahead to the next meeting and obviously everyone's looking ahead to that meeting so am i yeah and you get to go to washington <laughs> not from st louis but from san francisco uh, what uh, what do you need to see you, you know we've had strong jobs growth but we haven't had inflation picking up very much so what what does john williams have to see when he sits down at the table in june to say yes i'm arguing for i'm on board for the the rate hike
1: So I think we need to see a continuation of the progress we have been seeing over the last year, seeing core or underlying measures of inflation continue to move generally up towards 2%. I'm not expecting to jump towards 2%, but be on on the right trajectory, consistent with my forecast that over the next couple of years, two years, inflation will get back to 2%. I also want to see continued good job gains and continued signs of the economy as it has still good momentum. So I'm looking for a continuation of what we've been seeing, not for a big... upside surprise, Uh, but obviously uh, I don't need to see really strong data, just a a continuation of of what we have been seeing.
2: So
0: the status quo will be enough?
1: Yeah, because again, I think it would for me, it would resolve some of these uh, little worries about Q1 data. What was that telling us? I don't take a strong signal from it, but I want to make sure that that's the right conclusion. And also this issue about uh, uncertainty abroad and and, and financial market turmoil early in the year, we want to make sure that that didn't have a bigger impact on the U.S. economy. So if ICS continue to add good number of jobs, you know, again, improvements in the economy and good signs on inflation, that would be enough.
0: Good signs on inflation, but nothing that, because it's a forecast so far, right, right? John? And inflation has been undershooting for a long time. So in other words, you're willing to say, let's go ahead and raise interest rates again, June, even if inflation is still a forecast and it has moved higher.
1: That's right. As long as the inflation day are consistent with the forecast I have of moving towards 2%, uh, that would be enough. Now, you know, as you you mentioned, we've been missing undershooting inflation for quite some time, but uh, you know, in in terms of the, and I take that seriously in terms of thinking about what's happening, but in terms of monetary policy, let's remember, interest rates are still very low. Uh, I'm not talking about having uh, one interest rate increase, uh, you know, in the next few months or whenever isn't making tight monetary policy. It's just stepping back a little bit from the very accommodative monetary policy. So it's not about tightening policy so much as just pulling back a little bit on the accommodation we've had uh, in place.
0: Well, of course, as you know, market expectations are, uh, once again, a little bit out of sync with the Fed because right now, basically you could say the markets are pricing in just one interest rate increase. Right. You've had people like Larry Fink from BlackRock and Jeff Goodluck from uh, 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 a double, uh, double Line talking about just one interest rate increase this year, if that. So... Uh, You said even two or three weeks ago, not two, but even three rate increases – are reasonable this year. What is it that you see the markets don't? What are the markets missing?
1: Well, first of all, the markets aren't one person. Uh, there are you know millions of people involved in investing and making you know uh, forecasts and decisions uh, around that. So there are different views. When I look at the markets, the data from the markets, what you see is a uh, kind of a bimodal distribution. Uh, a lot of people think that the, the, the modal or the baseline case is the one that I've laid out. You know, unemployment continuing to come down, good job growth, 2% GDP, and inflation moving back. You see this in the survey of professional forecasters, the blue chip surveys. You see it from my own colleagues in our own dot plots, in our own SCP forecasts. There is this other part of the distribution, which I, under, you know, I think of as related to concerns about Asia, concerns about Europe and Japan the rest of the world, that there's this downside scenario where global growth really slows, other things happen, and that, that's a negative shock to the U.S. So obviously that's priced into the market, the possibility of a negative uh, scenario. That seems to get a lot of weight in investors' minds. So my view that... the we should be gradually raising interest rates this year is based on the notion that we follow this baseline scenario, that the data continue to come in, show the U.S. economy continues to be on the good track, and under those conditions, we should raise rates. Clearly, if the downside risk really do happen, uh, we see really negative effects in the U.S. economy, then we should uh, pause and and wait uh, until it's appropriate to raise rates. So I see the markets have trying to kind of balance these two different scenarios and come to their best estimates of what we should do, Uh, but, you know, again, I'm, my, my answer to your question really is, is the, my baseline scenario, where I, which is pretty optimistic.
0: So if we stay on track, uh, we're on track, then the June rate hike is a, a likelihood in your view, and certainly something you would support at the very least.
1: Well, so I don't want to say likelihood because, you know, we're never supposed to talk about right. what's going to happen at FOMC means or what my colleagues are going to say. And, then, of course, we're going to get a lot of data between now and then, and we'll have good discussions. But in my view, yes, it would be uh, appropriate, uh, given all of the things we've talked about, uh, to, to go on that. That next step. But, you know, a lot can happen between now and the middle of June.
0: That's for sure. What do you make of some of the data we've seen today? Certainly, the markets are reacting to the slowdown in manufacturing in China and uh, slowdown in the UK. We've got some mixed numbers earlier in the week. And, of course, our own, one of our key manufacturing gauges from the Institute for Supply and Management. Heading back towards 50 again. Does that give you any pause, John?
1: Well, you know, I, I think, again, you have to look at all the data and analyze it very carefully. And in terms of China, I think the story we're seeing and we've been seeing for the last couple of years is that this pivot in China from a manufacturing export-driven economy has been moving more to consumer goods, more to services. And so we've seen a kind of sequence of disappointments around Chinese manufacturing data, which I don't think really reflects the overall economy so much as the fact that they are really are moving their economy from one uh, um, you know, kind of one focus uh, to another. And, and I expect to see a continuation of kind of weaker manufacturing readings from China, uh, but, that is, but seeing stronger uh, spending on consumer consumer spending and other indicators. In terms of the U.S., I think the uh, you know, manufacturing sector clearly has been hit by the uh, fall in oil prices, which cuts back on drilling and oil, uh, you know, uh, uh, drilling and, and those activities, which is uh, buys a lot of steel and things like that. And obviously the strong dollar has affected the manufacturing sector. But I read the ISM uh, actually data is as being pretty neutral. It's not that manufacturing is contracting or something, but it just is growing modestly.
0: Okay, You, you know, uh, one of the things a lot of Fed officials, including you, have downplayed is the weakness in oil prices, is the strong dollar. Okay. They're transitory. How do you know those forces are transitory and what if they're not? Because they've certainly been holding inflation down for a while. And again, the Fed has this dual objective, and one of them is hitting that okay. inflation target.
1: Yeah, yeah, and just to, to clarify, uh, is the, I don't view the oil prices as transitory, but their effect on inflation, as you suggested is, is more transitory. We're seeing that. You know, when oil prices move up and down, overall inflation moves up and down. Uh, but we're not seeing any obvious signs from movements in oil prices onto uh, major moves kind uh, uh, can pass through to core inflation or underlying inflation. And that's kind of the second-round effects that you worry about when you think about movements in commodity prices. Right now, I actually see, you know, oil prices have been a factor pushing down inflation. I uh, will ebb uh, just with time. And the underlying inflation in services especially – Uh, has been moving up. So, again, I'm 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 pretty confident that we're on the right track on inflation.
0: Okay, well, we're going to continue our conversation with San Francisco Fed President John Williams on Bloomberg Taking Stock for our radio program, and we certainly thank our Bloomberg TV listeners for joining us today. So, John, we want to uh, continue now with this uh, look at all the various factors that the markets are going over so so closely. I want to get back to this question of inflation, because I've been talking to a lot of Federal Reserve officials in St. Louis, Chicago, here in San Francisco now, and one of the themes I've heard is that inflation has undershot its target for so long that it's not only possibly not a bad idea, but actually a good idea, to have inflation at or above target for mm-hmm. a while, but I don't think you're on board with that.
1: You no, know, I, I don't think we want to tar- aim for inflation above our 2% longer run goal on, on purpose. What I would love to see is inflation be, on average, 2%, sometimes half the time above, half the time a little below, but really just fluctuating around that 2%. So being a little bit above 2% is not something I worry about. Being, uh, you know, That doesn't worry me, but again, I don't see us as trying to target a high inflation rate uh, uh, in the future future. Now, you know, one of the things we made clear earlier uh, with our, one of our statements was that the goal was symmetric. So 2% is not our ceiling. Uh, really is the midpoint of where we want to see inflation uh, be. Now, my own forecast over the last year, I sometimes, based on my own views, you know, have inflation just moving right to 2%. Sometimes overshooting a little bit due to the dynamics in inflation. Again, that, that to me is not an important issue. A little bit of overshooting isn't a problem. But we don't want to purposefully try to create higher inflation, uh, in my view.
0: Uh, There's an interesting statistic I wonder if you've had a chance to look at, and that is if you look at uh, the year-to-date inflation rate for about two decades now, it has consistently run below 2%. If you look at it that way, it's consistently undershot. Uh, What does that tell us about perhaps some kind of secular change in this economy, globally, there's so much global disinflation. There's whiffs of global deflation. As you've studied this for so long over the years, John, not only uh, as San Francisco Fed president but director of research and in all your academic studies, are you raising questions about this now yourself?
1: Well, you know, I, I'm, I may not be. I may not be totally alone in this, but I'm one of the few people who says I think the Phillips curve is alive and well. I think that uh, our understanding of inflation has, is uh, the models we've used over the last few decades. I think are good indicators. You look at under inflation, so core inflation is running about 1.6 percent of the last year. Uh, some of that is due to lagged effects of a weaker economy. A lot of it's due to the strong dollar and some pass through of energy prices into the core. Uh, if you look at the trim mean from the Dallas Fed, again, it's telling you the same kind of thing, about one and three quarters percent or something like that. I don't think that inflation behavior right now is inconsistent with uh, standard models of inflation. It reflects the fact that we've been hit by a whole bunch of big shocks. So the dollar strengthening by over 20 percent for a while. Now it's come back a bit, Um, you know, the decline in oil prices, and weak global growth uh, more generally. So I I think these are factors that have held us uh, down on inflation the last few years. Obviously, the the recession uh, had a huge effect on inflation in the U.S. uh, for many years. Uh, But, again, I don't see this as some kind of break uh, in the trend or or behavior of inflation. I do think the good news here that we don't want to forget is we do have reasonably well anchored inflation expectations in the U.S. So, you know, that meant that uh, we avoided deflation uh, during the Great recession, which was very important. And today, I think, you know, having well-anchored inflation expectations is an important part of uh, helping us get back to our our 2% goal. Um, And that's just something we want to preserve.
0: Okay. I want to ask you also, again. you you mentioned uh, that uh, the markets and market reaction. And of course, the first three months of the year, uh, there was a, a big market sell-off, watching China, Uh, one of the things that seemed to slow the Fed in its tracks because after looking at four interest rate increases in December at the FOMC meeting, by March the Fed said, you know what, it looks like two are more prudent. Janet Yellen in her testimonies to Congress has has talked about how the market impact really provided a certain amount of offset to some potential downward pressure on the U.S. economy from the market turmoil, certainly bond yields being lower. You've, you downplayed, though, in a recent speech, John, the, uh, what the market was reacting to. You said it wasn't so much just some rate uh, move on the Fed's part. It was all these other factors. But so many people in the markets have interpreted no, number one, that the markets saw the Fed starting embarking on a series of rate hikes, number one, and then the Fed seeing that and in a sense acknowledging in fact that this had unstabilized the markets to the degree that it, it lessened the need for rate hikes this year. Or did you, how did you look at that change then in the rate hike? forecast for 2016. Did you not think it was necessary, or did I sort of misunderstand you in that speech where you downplayed the market and what it was reacting to?
1: Well, I do think that the market's reacting to a lot of different things, and obviously talking to people in the markets, I hear the story about the Fed, uh, its role and, and concerns around that. Uh, my view is a lot of the reaction early this year was concerns about China's slowing growth, concerns about very low inflation in the, in the, in the Euro area, uh, struggles uh, in other countries as well, uh, uh, so I think that a lot of it's really driven by things that are happening outside the country. Importantly, though, those things happening outside the U.S. come back and affect the U.S. economy too. So we have to take that into account. Uh, the strengthening of the dollar, obviously, was a big factor that pushes down inflation, slows our growth. Uh, you know, weaker growth abroad uh, has those uh, slows our growth uh, in exports as well. So we have to take that into account. So again, I think our forecasts have come down for growth for 2016. Um, you know, and, and I think that's consistent with the fact that there are changes. Changes in financial and global conditions that, uh, that affect the U.S. economy, and then that feeds into the appropriate path for policy. So, to me, it's not as huge a surprise that you know the dots uh, you know uh, have moved out. again. I'm not speaking for why. Wide- my colleagues uh, had their own views. One of the things that I would just raise is based on you know, research a lot of people have done is I think that as this recovery and expansion it goes on and on with very low interest rates, yet we're still only getting at or slightly above trend growth, it does make me think that this kind of neutral or equilibrium interest rate is lower than we previously thought. And you can see this in the kind of long-run interest rate projections from my colleagues, but a lot of economic uh, academic literature is showing that uh, I think pretty persuasively that the new norm for interest rates, it's just much lower than we thought, say, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, so today, the, the median dot has the Fed funds rate ending up at 3.25%. If you had asked that same question 15 you know, years ago, people would probably have said something like uh, 4.25% or 4.5% with a 2% inflation rate. I actually think there's some downside to this. I think that maybe the new normal, the new natural interest rate, if you will, uh, maybe even lower than 1.25%. I think that some of these long-run slowdowns in uh, demographics, productivity. Growth, Growth. I know that you're going to talk to John Fernald, my colleague, who's a leading expert on productivity trends and has studied this very extensively, uh, and he's in, his views on productivity have informed uh, me uh, on this, is that you know, with slower growth globally and in the U.S. and many other countries, it, uh, I think it does argue that uh, the natural rate or normal uh, interest rates are just going to be much lower in the future.
0: And, of course, Emeril going to be speaking to Mary Daly yes. uh, in this hour. She's a head of research here at the San Francisco Fed. Um, one more question, again, a criticism I've heard from a couple of economists lately, that maybe you know, you're stressing the strength of the labor market, mm-hmm. that you're stressing headcount over the demand for labor services, but basically, the number of jobs created exaggerates the demand for labor services because it counts full time and part time workers equally, mm-hmm. downplays the length of the work week, uh, fails to address the fact that some of the jobs created are low wage, low skilled jobs. And uh, not recognizing the failure of wages to rise as also a lack of demand for labor services. How do you look at that headcount versus the other side of the coin? How do you weigh that? Because that would suggest maybe the labor market isn't sending such a strong sure. I- signal.
1: And that's a, a view that you know many people have argued on the side that there's still some slack in the labor market and that you know we we can continue uh, easy mo- easy you know, continue with our accommodative monetary policy. So first of all, this is the best case you know I can make for why you know at the Fed we need really top notch researchers to help us think through all these issues. You mentioned labor force participation. We talked about productivity. We talked about uh, you know the natural rate of unemployment. You think about part time uh, uh, for, part time for economic reasons. All these issues about the labor market and what's happening and how to uh, think about that is what our team uh, at the San Francisco Fed works uh, uh, constantly on. It's helped think a lot about. It. And you're going to talk to Mary Daly about that some more. And here's the way I see it: is that you know during the Great Recession there were a lot of big questions about what's happened to the labor market. Is there a new normal? Is is the economy fundamentally shifted. And I think the good news here overall is that most of the research that I've seen is that the, the new economy is going to be similar to the old economy. The normal unemployment rate, about 5%. So that's good. It's, it's not a, uh, some kind of negative structural change. In terms of labor force participation, the declines we've seen are mostly driven by demographics, of so retirement, the baby boom, and things like that. That again, doesn't seem to be the structural change. So, you know, my, my view, just to summarize on this, is that the wage, uh, okay, the, you'll be able to talk to Mary about the wage state more, but I don't think that's sending such a negative signal. This is Taking Stock, the Fed in Focus on Bloomberg
2: Radio. Two-year government yields are negative in France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. So are negative interest rates deflationary, or is their presence simply an indication that the demand for money and increased prices is now upon us? Let's find out more from the Federal Reserve President of the San Francisco Fed, uh, John Williams. He's joining my co-host Kathleen Hayes in San Francisco. So, uh, John Williams, negative interest rates, does that mean that people just don't even want to borrow money?
1: Well, I, what you see in negative interest rates in the countries where uh, uh, inflation is very low and, in fact, deflation has uh, come up a number of times. And so it's to, to many, I think, people, it's just a continuation of going from you know normally positive interest rates down to zero and then moving to negative basically to try to move people to spend more money and to stimulate the economy and, and create more jobs and create some more inflation. So it's definitely a, something we haven't seen before, uh, really. Uh, Do and you believe that it works? I think it works in part because it brings down interest rates, as you just mentioned, with all those two-year yields, and I think a boost uh, has a, kind of the normal effects. I do think there's some negative effects, too, uh, in terms of confidence and, and also, I think, in, in terms of uh, functioning in a financial market. So yeah, the Fed, you know, we thought about this and decided we didn't want to go to negative interest rates. Instead, we went to other, other policy tools, uh, and, I, and I think that's what we would do in the future. But it's definitely something we're watching and trying to understand uh, better because it's happening in so many other countries.
0: Well, you know, John, this leads me to uh, look at the banking system. And broadly, there's been a a concern about reach for yield, Mm -hmm. that if rates are so low and even negative, people will go out the risk spectrum just to make some money, and that could cause problems. But uh, yesterday at the Milken Institute conference, you said that you see a risk that the relentless demand for safe cash-like assets could drive the creation of a dangerous instrument that repackages risky securities and calls them safe, like Christ crisis era CDOs within the next five years. Are you thinking of anything specific right now? Obviously, the Fed banks oversee the banking system, and you've got some pretty important players.
1: Right. So, I, you know, again, at, at the conference, I was highlighting this as a, as a risk down the road. I don't see this as a risk really uh, emerging right now or in danger of emerging, but it's something that we need to be focused on. I mean, there were a lot of causes of the financial crisis, but clearly one of them was a global demand, uh, extremely strong global demand, for things that are, appear to be safe assets. That are very liquid you could trade uh, you can uh, uh, do uh, repos on and things like that um, so with that huge demand that led to people being very creative and engineering uh, what they thought of as uh, taking mortgage uh, mortgages and turning them into uh, you know tranching them and turning them into different assets that had different risk characteristics the problem was is that people got fooled that these risky assets were somehow cleansed of their risk through this process as opposed to that the risk was still was still there and I do worry that the fundamental issue, this huge global demand for safe assets, has, if anything, gotten bigger and stronger today uh, than it was in the past. So I think there is a potential down the road for fin- financial institutions and financial engineers uh, to come up with the next, uh, you know, whatever you know whatever it will be, and I don't know what it will be, uh, but uh, kind of um, a process of uh, repackaging risky assets and trying to sell them as safe.
0: Does the Fed have the tools to prevent that this time?
1: Well, I think we, we have the tools in terms of the banking sector. I I'm a, I think that we've accomplished a lot in terms of making sure our banking sector in the U.S. and in our uh, other regulatory agencies in other countries have also done the same to make sure they have adequate capital, you know, strong risk management, and all of those things. So I think the banking sector is much better positioned. But a lot of this creation of these money-like or cash-like instruments really happens outside the banking sector into what we often call the shadow banking sector. So I think it's an area that we have to keep monitoring and, and making sure we understand Understand and 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 in realizing that the you know the the next financial crisis could be a very different uh, thing than we saw last time, and in, in trying to understand where those risks are.
2: I wonder if you could speak to the issue of people who work and people who save what little money they have left over after they have spent what they need to live. Negative interest rates hurt them. If you want to stimulate spending, why don't you just give them money? Why take it away from them?
1: Well, you know, giving people money is uh, what you know we would typically call fiscal policy, uh, like tax cuts or government spending. So, you know, central banks like the Fed and the ECB uh, don't have the authority to do that. And in the end, the authority they do have is to, to move interest rates up and down. I agree with the, the basic premise you pointed out, though, is that negative interest rates comes with quite a few, with costs as, as well as some benefits. And again, you know, I, I don't want to speak uh, what would I do if I were in the, in the ECB or in other central banks as they face... Really difficult challenges, but again, it's one of the reasons in the in the U.S. of the Fed, we have thought about this carefully numerous times and decided that negative interest rates was not the most effective tool, uh, partly for the reasons that you laid out, but for other ones that I mentioned earlier too.
0: Well, we're going to continue our conversation here uh, with John Williams at the San Francisco Fed. Uh, We're going to be talking also with Mary Daly. She is the Director of Research at the San Francisco Fed. We're going to look at wage growth. Won't you wish your paycheck was getting bigger? Well, the Fed certainly does because they'd like to see some more inflation, and that could be a very important channel. Um, Mary and her team have come up with some very interesting research which uh, suggests that uh, maybe the slowdown in wages wasn't caused exactly the way you thought and why maybe the pickup isn't going to be either. I'm Kathleen Hayes in San Francisco, Pim Fox in New York, speaking with John Williams. He's president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco on Bloomberg Radio.